The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing five stories for you about eerie enchantments, creepy cabins, awful animals, locomotive legends, and forest fiends. All of the tales in tonight's episode were originally planned to be included in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights trilogy of horror anthologies produced in homage to the iconic Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark book series. However, a decision was recently made to produce longer stories for those books, meaning that many of the excellent short stories are now able to be made available to you here on this very program. I sincerely hope you enjoy these bite-sized tastes of terror from tonight's featured and very talented authors. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Megan J. Meehan and is part of an ongoing doctoral research study being conducted by the author, in which she's working to determine whether or not readers and listeners can learn advanced words via listening to fictional narratives. That's pretty cool. A link to Megan's survey, hosted by SurveyMonkey, 
It's available in the episode notes and will be mentioned after the story, in case you'd like to contribute to the study. On behalf of the author, thanks for your help. Now, without further ado, I present to you Encercel. It had started with a word, Encercel. Pollyanna had first overheard it when she was a child, playing with her Barbies in the spacious parlor, as her mother prattled away on the phone to one pageant organization or another. She'll absolutely encircle everybody. She's a natural. Adeline gushed every chance she got, always eager to promote her daughter. Pollyanna asked her mother what the strange word meant one day, shortly thereafter, while they were waiting at yet another terminal to board yet another plane to go to yet another beauty pageant. It means to enchant or fascinate or absolutely bewitch, Adeline had said, beaming. It's what beautiful girls like you do to anyone who looks at you. Pollyanna had felt special. Not everyone had the power to answer cell. Of course, answer selling could go many different ways. Adeline Marbury had first come upon the word answer cell in an old book of fairy tales. She had frequently escaped into books as a girl to escape the insufferable mundaneness of her daily life. Pollyanna was named after an unabashedly cheerful character from an old book. She was named so because Adeline lived by the mantra that it was important for girls to smile. Looking pleasant was part of being beautiful, and smiles impressed the judges which was the primary objective, after all. Whether it was her smile, or her pearly white teeth, or her bleached blonde hair, or her perfectly manicured fingernails, immaculate makeup, and shimmery, skimpy costumes, Pollyanna had won the judges over time and time again. She had trophies and ribbons to prove it. Pollyanna had been enrolled in beauty pageants since she was three years old. Her mother had started prepping her for a life of pageantry practically since she learned she was pregnant with a girl. You're blessed to have those opportunities, darling. Adeline Mayberry had told her only child time and time again. Adeline had seen beauty as the benign all and end all to having a successful life. She had been an undeniably beauty in her day, the true Georgia Peach, Blonde hair, blue-eyed, slender, pale, central casting for supermodels. Yet she had also been from a solidly working-class and strict religious family. Her mama wouldn't let her wear makeup even when she was 16. Instead, Adeline spent most of her youth stocking shelves and working the cash register at the family's general store. Adeline's escape came when she was 16, and met Doug John, nine years her senior, a law school graduate, and hailing from a respectable family of old money. Moreover, Doug was the only heir to his recently deceased father's fortune. He and Adeline crossed paths at the county fair, and the way Adeline told it, Doug had been smitten, even downright ensorilled, with her from the moment he laid eyes on her. The way the local gossips told it, Doug was desperately seeking a pretty, prim, and proper wife 
to distract folks from his questionably quirky behavior, especially his weirdly close attachment to a local waiter named Bob, who was also, mysteriously, still single well into adulthood. Adeline practically dragged Doug down the aisle, eager to escape from the drudgery of the store. After they married, she zealously spent money on clothes and makeup and dolling up the sizable colonial mansion that Doug had purchased for them. Two years into the marriage, they had Pollyanna, their sole child. Adeline reveled in making her parents beg to see their only grandchild. Needless to say, relations were strained. If Adeline enjoyed decorating her house, she absolutely delighted in adorning her daughter in every frilly, fancy getup she could find. Beauty pageants were the cornerstones of Pollyanna's childhood. Her mother told her over and over again that learning how to apply makeup, strut, walk, and feel comfortable in sequins was her best chance of finding success. You're so pretty, Polly, went Adeline's mantra. You're going to be a rich man's wife and live like a queen all your life. Just wait and see. Pollyanna loved both her mother's praise and the way she glimmered when she was standing under the stage lights in full costume. Initially, she hadn't enjoyed the spray tanning or sitting for hours getting her makeup done or attaching wigs and extensions to her bleached hair or the weird sensation of acrylic nails or the way the fake eyelash glue stuck her lashes together. But whenever Pollyanna dared to have a meltdown, her mother matched her tantrum tit for tat. I'm trying to secure your future, so stop being such an ungrateful brat. Adeline would shriek, alongside similar statements, until they were both in tears. Over time, Pollyanna stopped fighting. She didn't like to upset her mother, and when she was a good girl... She got a Barbie doll. Adeline said that tall, thin, blonde Barbie was a good role model. Pollyanna's grandparents were horrified by their grandchild's relentless pageantry involvement. Decidedly not enceraled with glitz and glamour, they vehemently protested what they considered a sexualization of their sole grandchild from toddlerhood onward. Yet every time they complained, or dared to utter a single critical comment, Adeline distanced herself further until there was no relationship left and, subsequently, no further protests. For his part, Doug said nothing about anything. Since his marriage, he'd stayed away from Bob but got closer to the bottle. He lived in the same house, but Pollyanna rarely saw him. When he died of liver failure when she was six... Neither she nor Adeline shed many tears. After Doug's death, Pollyanna's involvement in pageants increased dramatically. She could afford to enter bigger and grander contests everywhere from Texas to California to Las Vegas. Pollyanna loved traveling, but she loved performing more. Singing and dancing had become her forte and joy. She knew no greater thrill than performing on stage and hearing the audience applaud. I've encircled them, she would think to herself, smiling ear to ear, whilst taking a bow. In her spare time, Pollyanna constantly practiced her routines, and that dedication had been her downfall. When she was fourteen, Pollyanna lost her balance while twirling on a patio. She fell awkwardly and banged her head hard on the brick-coated ground, 
she split open her forehead, broke her nose, and knocked out two front teeth. The doctor at the emergency room said she was lucky to have avoided a concussion, but her mother couldn't be comforted. You've ruined your life! Adeline sobbed when she saw the stitches embedded within her beautiful daughter's forehead. Who's going to watch you now? Those words stung Pollyanna more deeply than any said before, but she hadn't responded. There was nothing to say. A dentist implanted two false front teeth that looked and felt real, and her nose healed cleanly, leaving no trace of the accident. But the scar on her forehead remained. Despite her initial outburst, Adeline didn't turn her back on her only child, much to the contrary. She did everything in her power to find a cure. She took her to specialists, applied every type of healing cream on the market, but nothing completely erased the deep scar that the injury had placed upon Pollyanna's otherwise flawless skin. Pollyanna participated in three pageants after the accident, but didn't win a single one. Even the professional makeup artist couldn't cover the mark, and the other contestants and their mothers pointed and snickered audibly. Adeline finally decided to stop entering the pageants, but she refused to stop searching for a remedy. You'll be right as rain soon, sugar. Don't you worry, she'd tell her daughter. Pollyanna was skeptical, to say the least. Yet the remedy was found at a big makeup convention in New York City. Adeline and Pollyanna didn't go every year, but whenever they did make the journey to the Big Apple, they enjoyed themselves immensely. Traditionally, they spent a day or two at the show and the rest of the week seeing the sights of the city, especially Fifth Avenue. Yet the first trip they took to the makeup show after the accident was not nearly as leisurely. It was a stone-cold mission to regain glory. They didn't find Glory, but they found Ilona Montine. She was manning a stand at the back row of the exposition, which should have been inconspicuous, but which somehow commanded attention. From the moment Adeline and Pollyanna spotted the stand, they were drawn to it like moths to a flame. The woman, presiding over the ensemble of bottles and jars, introduced herself as Ilona, and she was gorgeous. She possessed an enviable beauty that any aspiring model would kill for. She also promised that her potions could transform plain women into beauties and make gorgeous women irresistible. From the moment Pollyanna met Alona, she knew that she had found the person who would most alter the course of her life. It wasn't a feeling she could explain, but there was a definite connection to Alona an allure that even the most professional of photos could not capture. Elona spoke with a sing-song accent that was as alluring as the scents of her perfumes. Pollyanna couldn't remember exactly what had been said initially. It was as if she had been half-lulled and surreled to sleep, but she did remember Elona approaching her with sympathy-filled eyes and gently brushing back her long bangs exposing the scar. The scar is imperfection, yes. What I fix? She cooed in her clear yet broken English. Sit down, I make disappear. Pollyanna had done as instructed and allowed herself to be lathered with creams and gels 
as Alona's bewitching voice told her, and her brother, about all of the benefits of her creams and serums. With a sly smile, she called them potions. Pollyanna didn't know exactly how much time had passed, but when she rose from the chair and looked in a mirror, her scar was noticeably lighter. The next morning it was gone. Adeline and Pollyanna had shunned the rest of the city and spent every day at the makeup convention, huddled around Alona's booth, talking to her and buying up her stock of beauty treatments. Alona told them she was from Moldova, but lived in New York. After the convention closed, she had even invited them to her apartment for tea. The apartment was more akin to a penthouse. It was big and fancy and full of ancient-looking art. Clearly, Alona's beauty business had served her well. Once, whilst searching for the bathroom, Pollyanna came across a darkened room that smelled of incense. There were old scrolls and paintings hanging on the walls depicting demonic entities. There were also many photographs of misshapen, disfigured children, most of who appeared to be female. Pollyanna had let out a yelp of surprise and stumbled backwards. Then Alona was next to her, speaking words of comfort. This is my collection. She explained, demons, the ugliness I fight with, my mixtures. Photos show children I support by charity. Them I cannot cure. Whilst the scattered photos and disturbing artwork seemed weird, scary, and unsettling, Elona's explanation was convincing. And so Pollyanna had simply shut the door and thought no more about it. By the fifth day since making her acquaintance, Adeline and Pollyanna felt as if Elona was an old friend. It was difficult to go back to Georgia. They had to purchase extra luggage to carry back all the bottles and elixirs that they secured. They also kept in near constant contact with Elona via email. Months passed. Pollyanna entered and won three pageants, her flawless features ensorelling the judges as expected. Elona provided Adeline with creams to fight the insidious crow's feet, that were infringing around her eyes, and Adeline clearly liked the results she saw when she looked in the mirror. Yet, Pollyanna noticed her mother's looking frailer, and more drawn by the day. At times, it looked like she had aged twenty years without realizing it. Of course, Adeline refused to see a doctor. After all, she didn't feel sick. In fact, she didn't seem to notice anything but positive improvements. We've got to focus on becoming Miss America, Adeline told her daughter. And modeling. You're almost an adult. Now all these doors are opening for you. In two or three years, we'll be in Hollywood. Can you imagine your name in light, sugar? Pollyanna could, and it sounded good. After all, plenty of models, especially supermodels, went on to act. Yet, no such things happened. Instead, Pollyanna's world was turned upside down one morning, Five weeks after her 18th birthday, and six months after returning from New York, when she found her mother lying in bed, cold and dead. The doctors said it was a massive aneurysm. Adeline was promptly buried next to her husband, and Pollyanna was left alone and devastated in the big house with ample money and having no idea what to do with herself. In desperation, she called Ilona for advice. Expecting merely comfort, she was surprised by Elona's generous offer. Come, 
You be my assistant, Alona said soothingly. I have room in a house. You stay here. You be model, yes? It sounded too good to be true, but Pollyanna recalled Alona saying something about having a hard time finding suitable help. Pollyanna did like the excitement of the city, and she was intrigued by all the modeling opportunities it afforded, and so she promptly gathered her things and got on a plane. She didn't bother selling the house. She assumed that she would likely come back to Georgia from time to time. Life in New York was ensorelling, a whirlwind of conventions and parties and modeling shoots. Pollyanna met celebrities and got interviewed by modeling magazines. She even walked the runways during Fashion Week. Yet after a few months, all the excitement started to affect her. She felt tired and noticed that her skin didn't look as rosy and healthy as it once had. She awoke one morning and discovered supple gray hairs protruding from her scalp. Elona, who never seemed to age past 35 or so, laughed at the younger woman's panic and handed her a supplement to drink. For the first time, it didn't seem to work. Pollyanna continued to feel listless, old. A few weeks later, Pollyanna's graying hair started to fall out in clumps, her back ached, and her feet felt oddly numb. She wanted to see a doctor, but Alona said all she really needed was fresh air. We go to my country, she said. It's nice there. We settled you. Alona brought Pollyanna a plane ticket, and the two of them traveled to Eastern Europe. Pollyanna didn't enjoy the flight. She felt feverish and sore, in ways that not even the comforts of first class could abate. Alona assured her, as well as any flight attendants who dared to inquire, that she would be fine, and Alona was so convincing, so soothing, and soft-spoken that everyone believed her without further question. Pollyanna barely remembered landing. She didn't recall exiting the plane, collecting the luggage, or anything about the airport. She couldn't recall hailing a taxi or journeying into the city, but she did remember Elona practically carrying her, with seemingly superhuman strength, into a grand building that was more castle than mansion. Apparently, Elona had more money than she ever let on. Elona brought Pollyanna into an ornate bedroom and laid her down to rest amid a sea of plush pillows on a lush mattress and silk sheets. Pollyanna didn't know how long she slept or how many days went by. She was in and out of consciousness, vaguely aware of Alona coming in and out of the room. She was made to swallow unusual tasting drinks and rubbed with intoxicating scented ointments. Oddly, she vaguely recalled signing paperwork, but she had no idea how to differentiate between dreams and reality. The word sleep was gently cooed, seemingly continuously, compelling her to periodically drift back into darkness. At some point, Pollyanna regained consciousness. She felt very weak and very sore and very strange. She tried to move her legs, and agony instantly shot through her back. She crumpled, feeling discombobulated, wrong. Her head felt as heavy as lead, and her body jerked abnormally as she used all her wind strength to move toward the edge of the bed. She felt stray strands of hair lace her fingertips as her hand gripped the bed sheets. To her horror, she realized that her teeth were loose and her tongue was badly swollen. Something was seriously amiss. 
Pollyanna groaned. It was painful to move. But she had to get to a mirror. She had to see the state that she was in. Then she would call for an ambulance. She obviously needed a doctor desperately. She fell from the tall bed awkwardly, landing hard on the floor with a sickening thud. She cried out, her ribs throbbed, and she couldn't get her footing. Her eyes couldn't quite adjust in the darkness of the room, but she realized her legs were tiny and thin, almost mangled, as if they had shriveled up into her. Gathering her slight strength, Pollyanna pulled herself along the floor. Her arms practically screamed as she stretched them outward. Their muscles were clearly reducing and weakening just as her legs had. In the distance, Pollyanna saw a dim glint of light. She understood that she would not be able to stand up and look in a standard wall mirror, but there appeared to be an old, shiny suit of armor in the corner. It was surely reflective enough to let her assess her condition. Alas, a distance of twenty feet might as well have been twenty miles. Huffing and groaning with effort, Pollyanna slithered across the floor and struggled to the foot of the well-polished knight's armor. Nothing could have prepared her for the vision staring back at her. She was skinny, and her eyes were sunken into her gaunt face, like those of a skeleton. She was mostly bald, and her lips were cracked and caked with blood. Yet it was the state of her body that elicited a scream of horror. Her legs were indeed withered, and her arms were starting to retract unnaturally, and her spine was curved crookedly, rendering her into a misshapen lump of humpback flesh. Suddenly the bedroom door burst open. Pollyanna threw her head to the floor, crying out as the sudden burst of light assaulted her irises. Then Ilona was standing above her, looking younger and fresher than Pollyanna had ever seen. She didn't look thirty-five. She looked twenty-two at most. Hospital. Pollyanna tried to say, only to discover that she could not speak. Whatever had happened to her had made her incapable of articulating words or emoting anything more than guttural gurgles. Shh! Alona crooned, and for just a moment she changed. For the first time, Pollyanna saw Alona for what she really was, an ancient, crepe-skinned, skeletal witch with eyes as black as coal, more demon than human, Pollyanna recoiled in terror and blinked hard. In an instant, Ilona was back to her beautiful self, staring down at Pollyanna ruefully, undoubtedly understanding exactly what she had just seen. One thing was immediately clear. Ilona had enceralled her. Completely, truly, and utterly enceralled her. Adeline had been right. Ilona was certainly something else. Something else entirely. You'll go now. She lulled mockingly. You served me well, beauty. And so, Pollyanna found herself carted off to an institution where she was locked away with other pitifully deformed beings. She recognized several of them from the photographs she'd seen in Olona's Manhattan apartment. Images of their pathetic existences displayed like trophies. She supposed her own photograph was now a cherished part of that macabre collection. Pollyanna tried to explain what had happened to her, but like all the others, she could not speak coherently. Cruelly, photos of Ilona were displayed upon the walls of every room. After all, she was the primary patron of the asylum, 
the same establishment which she populated with a never-ending daisy chain of global victims whose homes she had acquired and fortunes she stole, along with their youth and health and beauty. Without outright murdering her victims, Alona nonetheless took their lives. With no family left to claim her or declare her missing, Pollyanna remained in the asylum. Her vision and mobility decreased, but compared to some of the other older patients, she was in good condition. Among the victims, Pollyanna was, indeed, a beauty. I hope you enjoyed Answer Cell by author Megan J. Meehan, as performed by yours truly. As a reminder, the tale you've just heard is part of an ongoing doctoral research study being conducted by the author, in which she's working to determine whether or not readers and listeners can learn advanced words via listening to fictional narratives. The author would sincerely appreciate it if you would consider participating in the studies. A link to Megan's short survey is available in the episode notes, or visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash survey7 and you'll be directed to SurveyMonkey, where it's hosted. Again, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y-7. Once again, on behalf of the author, thanks for your help. Up next, we've got a second terrifying tale for you. This one from Drew Stepik, the author behind the thrilling novel Knuckle Supper which you can enjoy in its entirety on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, performed by my friend and colleague Jason Hill, or on the Horror Hills podcast, First Season. Without further ado, I present to you The Cabin by Grizzly Lake. My sister Heather meant the world to me. She always seemed to have everything growing up. She was the homecoming queen in our small town. She graduated valedictorian of her class. She was voted most likely to succeed her senior year. She was the captain of the swim team and took our local girls to nationals three years in a row. Of course, it went without saying that there were always different boys lining up outside our front door to get her attention. During her freshman year at the local college, our parents died in a car accident, and just like that, Heather's life changed. Our parents didn't have any life insurance policies, so we were left to survive on our own, and she had to drop out of college to take care of me. She sacrificed everything for me, and as I went off to college on a scholarship, fewer and fewer boys came calling, and the opportunities to get back on track became a series of closed doors. As the years went on, the life she dreamed of and built towards slipped farther and farther away until it finally got so out of reach that it disappeared completely. She was eventually consumed by drugs, and the cost of her habit led to a life of living on the street. With that, her beauty eventually gave way to the beating of hard living. Her brilliance became clouded by the addiction monster, 
body became the shell of the one-time athlete. I constantly tried to take her in and nurse her back to health. I also sent her to rehab more times than I can count. I wanted to give her back all the things she gave me, but I didn't know how. She went missing. She would run away, never wanting to find the path that would return her to Heather. Her quests always ended up in alleys, abandoned houses, and running into walls. It got to the point where she didn't even relate to her own greatness. She was lost. As horrible as it sounds, I'm ashamed to admit that Heather became a burden. Week after week, her routine became a series of run-ins with the police. She was in and out of urgent care. One time, she got hit by a car, ignored her injuries, and almost bled to death. The worst part about it was that she never looked to me for any help. I don't even think she knew how to ask for it. I spent a lot of time crying by her bedside when I did manage to get her to momentarily dry out. Her deafening cries always made me remember the accident and my parents. I sipped the water that the doctor's assistant gave me. What do you mean she can't stay here anymore? We've been through this, Tucker. The doctor returned. She doesn't have any insurance. Well, that doesn't make any sense, I shot back. I pay it every month. He handed me a stack of papers. Unfortunately, the policy doesn't cover her checking in and out of hospital to dry out. I'm sorry. I looked through the paperwork, desperate to find a loophole. Truth be told, I wouldn't even know a loophole if I did find it. You just can't throw her out in the street. She needs medical help. He looked down at his desk, trying not to make eye contact with me, and then he pushed his horn-rimmed glasses up off the tip of his nose. He began again. It would be one thing. He hesitated for a minute. It would be one thing if she tried even a little to get better. This hospital isn't a revolving door. We just don't have the means to continue to treat her. From down the hall, I heard Heather crying and screaming. He pointed to his door. Other patients are constantly complaining about her loud screaming. So that's it? You're just going to throw her away? I'm sorry, he said definitively as he stood up and extended his hand to shake. I wish there was something I could do. There is... He stopped for a second, then closed his eyes and shook his head. Forget it, he decided. Backtracking. There's what? I asked before I gave in and shook hands with him. He nervously shook his head. There is nothing I can do to help. Come on, Doc. I put my hands together and drew them toward my face, as if I was praying for a solution. You were going to say something. There has to be something. You've known Heather since she was in elementary school. You know that if there ever was someone the world owes, it's her. He turned away from me and pulled down a blind so he could look outside. Again, he was avoiding me. Please. I started begging. Please help her end this cycle. I hear the screaming. She's in pain. There has to be a solution. 
There is something unorthodox. He dropped his hand to his side, and the blind popped back into line with the rest. What is it? I frantically ran over beside him. I'll do anything. Is it one of the new age solutions that have been reading about online? Something like that, he said. Because I haven't looked into it, though. I can't in good conscience put you through this. I put my hand on his shoulder. What is it? There's a radical treatment center over by Grizzly Lake. Uh, I'm not familiar with Grizzly Lake. I confessed. I wasn't either. I just found out about it the other week. I know nothing more than that. I haven't heard any success stories. I don't know anyone involved. All I do know is that it's not licensed medication for addiction. What I do know is that it involves fully unmonitored withdrawal treatment. I'll do anything to help Heather. Desperate, I asked him. How do I get in touch with him? clasped my hand on his shoulder and bent over to open the top drawer in his desk. He shuffled through some papers and office supplies and then, after a few seconds, he produced a business card. He handed it to me. I read it out loud. Grizzly Lake Therapy, I said. The path's beyond treatment. On the left side of the card was a picture of a cabin on a lake with the sun rising behind it. He took his glasses off and dropped them on the desk. Tucker, I wish I could offer you another way solution. It's not your fault, Doc. Can she stay here tonight while I try to get in touch with these guys and get this squared away? Heather's loud scream shook the glass pane on the door to his office. He nodded, yes. I put the card in my back pocket and said my goodbyes. When I got home, I called the number on the card. Grizzly Lake Therapy? The voice on the other end said as they answered. Hello, I responded. I... Mr. Johnson? I pulled the phone away from my ear and looked at the screen. The number was unlisted. How do you know my name? We just got done speaking to your sister's doctor. Doctor... I heard some papers shuffling around. Dr. Townsend... Who am I speaking to? My name is Roland Mawanow. I'm the creator of the treatment and the founder of the organization. I cut to the chase. Can you help her? Dr. Townsend told us the severity of her problem. I haven't consulted with my colleagues yet, but we are willing to try and help you both. Uh, how much? Will you accept her insurance? I looked over at the bills stacking up in my kitchen counter. Grizzly Lake Therapy is a privately funded organization, Mawanow started, as if he were developing a sales pitch. I guess you can say that we are still smoothing out the bumps in the program, so for a somewhat limited time, we're offering our services as a pro bono care initiative. I spoke for Heather. She has no alternative. At this point... The only foreseeable outcome is that she dies in the streets. Desperate. Let me speak to the other decision-makers in the organization, and I'll call you back. She might not make it through the night, Dr. Mawanow. She won't stop screaming and crying. She's in pain. I am not a doctor. He whispered. Oh, sorry, Mr. Mawanow. 
Your sister has to be willing to want to be better. She has to give herself to the process. I'll call you back after I've spoken to the rest. And, Mr. Johnson? Yes? If we decide not to take on your sister's case, I sincerely wish you luck. He hung up before I got a chance to thank him or further plead my case. About an hour later, my phone rang. The number was unlisted. I picked it up. Hello? We'll take her, Mamana said. Please meet us at the hospital in an hour. Our representatives are already there getting her discharge in order. Bring everything you need for yourself. This is not an easy process. Are you sure you want to go through this? I know, I told him. The good thing is that I've sat by her side through withdrawal many, many times. I know what to expect. Then, he reassured me, you are 99% there. Also, please bring something of significance to Heather, uh, such as something that helps a reminder of her former life. I hung up the phone and threw a couple of changes of clothes, my toothbrush, my phone charger, and my deodorant into a backpack. As I was leaving, I remembered that Mawano asked me to bring something that held special significance to Heather. I ran upstairs into her room. I opened the closet and began rummaging through the garbage bags that held her life. The bags were filled with broken swimming trophies, pictures of her and all her friends and old outfits. I didn't come across anything that I felt would really hit home with her. That was until I reached the final trash bag. At the bottom, tearing a hole in the side of the bag, was her homecoming crown. I looked at it closely, and memories of Heather's high school days, glory, flashed before my eyes. When I reached the hospital, two men were loading the frail Heather into a white van that had the same Grizzly Lake Therapy logo from the business card painted on the side. Where are you taking me? Heather cried out. I ran over to help them. Dazed and with tears streaming down her cheeks, she begged me for answers. Tuck, where are they taking me? I pet the top of her once beautiful hair. It was dirty and bound together in spots. At the roots, the hair was drenched, as was her face. We're going to try something new, Heather. She doubled over before she stepped into the van and groaned. Then she bounced backward and began screaming like she was a dog howling at the moon. I recognized the sound. The worst of the withdrawal symptoms were starting to kick in. I looked over at one of the men, who I assumed was from Grizzly Lake Therapy. Where's Mawana? I asked. Uh, he won't be making this trip. The other responded. Why not? We're capable of setting up the therapy accommodations, the other said. We finally managed to load her into the van, and I wrapped a blanket around her to try and alleviate her shaking. One of the orderlies handed me a contract. I quickly read through it. There was a lot of language about Grizzly Lake Therapy not being responsible for the outcome of the treatment. There was even more language making sure that neither Heather nor I had any drugs on us. The long and the short of it was that this was an exploratory treatment and that the patient had to be 100% committed to ending their cycle of addiction. Sure, I didn't have a lawyer present, 
but the contract didn't have any legal terms that would have prevented me from signing it, and no red flags went off in my head. I signed and got in the van. On the trip, Heather started screaming louder and shaking uncontrollably. This was the worst I'd ever seen her. She was in worse shape than the time before this, that set the bar in the time before that. Help me! She cried at the top of her lungs. Tucker, please help me! As she faded in and out of consciousness, I continued to pet her hair. Whenever she woke up, she would scream directly into my ear, begging me to take away the pain. I held her close, trying to share the warmth of my body with her, to stop her shaking. A few times, she even vomited on me. The worst part of her symptoms was always the crying, the screaming. I never knew how to help or what to do. She went through bouts of begging me to give her something to ease her discomfort. Then, when I looked to the orderlies from Grizzly Lake Therapy to see if they could help her out, the driver would look into the rearview mirror and shake his head. She has to be 100% free of all drugs, he told me. If she isn't, the therapy won't work. Eventually, I calmed her, and she let me put her head on my lap. I tried to look down at her, hoping to see my big sister look back at me, smiling. Whenever I did, however, all I saw were the sunken cheekbones that had absorbed the rest of her face. After about two hours, that seemed like a torturous eternity, we pulled down a dirt road. We're coming up to the facility, the passenger told me. I wiped the tears away from my eyes. I don't know if she's going to make it. Please tell me you have something at the facility to help her. The driver looked at the passenger and neither responded. I took that as a no. At around 9 p.m., we stopped in front of a cabin that looked exactly like the cabin on the logo. You're kidding me. I said as Heather's shaking began to escalate again. This isn't a facility. Still silent, the driver and the passenger got out of the van. One of them came around to the side and opened the sliding door while the other retrieved a gurney that was in the back. Their silence continued. Where's Mama now? I turned on my phone and started to look for the number that I called earlier. Before I had a chance to find it, however, the driver snatched my phone out of my hand. You have to surrender your phone, Mr. Johnson. The treatment won't work if there's any contact to outside entities. They loaded Heather onto the gurney and strapped her arms and legs. This isn't right. Take us back to town, I demanded. The driver stood in front of the sliding door, blocking me from Heather, as the passenger started wheeling her into the cabin. You have to be 100% committed to the treatment as well. Please, sir, grab your belongings and go to the cabin. No one said this was going to be easy. Are the restraints on her necessary? I asked, confused by everything that had just transpired. They'll know when to undo them. He grabbed me by my shoulders and lightly shook me. Understand, this will be the most difficult thing you've ever done. I've helped her through withdrawal several times. It's never easy. This will be the worst, son. There was a strange compassion in his eyes, and I heard the sincerity in his voice. 
It was as if he'd been in my position before. It was as if he understood. I grabbed my bag and headed into the cabin. There was no furniture inside the one-room musky building other than a card table chair and the driver unfolded and put next to Heather's gurney. There was also no medical devices. However, the passenger left the cabin for a minute and returned with a rolling IV. He put a bag of what I assumed was water on it, then put the tube into her arm. The passenger reached his hand out toward me and said, The keepsake, please. The keepsake? The personal keepsake that you brought for her. Oh, I said. I unzipped my backpack, pulled out the crown, and handed it to him. He looked at it for a few moments, burning his finger through the inside. I guessed that he was searching for any drugs that I might have snuck in for. Satisfied that I wasn't breaking the contract, he placed the crown on her chest. Is that all you're going to do for her? When she wakes up, she's going to be going through severe withdrawal. They didn't answer at first, but then the driver finally said, Expect others to come by around midnight. Will Mom and I be coming? I asked for the last and final time. They didn't answer. They started to leave the cabin, and the driver looked back. Take care, Mr. Johnson. I really do mean that. We will return your phone to you in the morning. I looked at my watch as the van pulled away. It was only 9.15. While I waited for Heather to wake up, I paced around the small cabin. There was absolutely nothing to her. There wasn't a stove. There wasn't a fireplace. There wasn't even a bathroom. I knocked on the wood and saw that it was rotting from the inside out. Even the slightest touch would cause it to splinter. The floor wasn't floor at all. It was dirt. I made my way to the back. There was a rear entrance that had a window on either side. I opened it and saw that down a hill about 50 yards away was a lake. I assumed that it was Grizzly Lake. Before I got the opportunity to investigate further, however, Heather woke up and started screaming again. I shut the door and quickly took her side on the chair that the orderlies had set up next to her gurney. Why do you hate me? She screamed over and over again. Why are you doing this to me? The high-pitched cries dug into my ear. It was the most awful noise that I'd ever heard. It was so much worse than any of the times that she screamed and begged for comfort at a hospital. The fact that there was nothing I could give her. I patted my pockets, hoping that maybe I had a piece of gum or candy, but I didn't. The scream shook the foundations of the cabin, and at one point I thought that shrieking was going to cause the small building to collapse. I grabbed her hand tightly. I love you so much, Heather. You're the greatest person I've ever met. I love you more than anything in the entire world. The tears turned to bawling. You sacrificed so much for me. You gave up everything for me. She continued to scream and drown me out, so I squeezed her hand tighter and started to yell over her, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you too, Tucker. She finally said, Thud, thud, thud. 
Three loud knocks on the back door booms through the cabin walls. I looked down at my watch, not realizing how much time had passed since she began screaming. It was midnight. I looked back toward the door, not knowing what to say. I asked, Who's there? No one responded. Thud! 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 I got up from the chair and started moving toward the banging. Before I reached the door or had the chance to look out either of the windows, however, whatever was outside let out a howl that was equally as loud as Heather's, as if they were communicating pain back and forth. Heather yelled back in agony. You could hear her vocal cords giving way to exhaustion. I reached the back door and put my ear up against the wood. What do you want? Rather than an answer, whatever was on the other side screamed back, causing me to hop backward and lose my balance. As my butt hit the ground, I started crawling back to the gurney. Before I reached Heather, however, several other screams rang into the cabin through loose walls. Dust shook from the boards as they creaked. Heather screamed again. Thud! 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 choir of screams became louder and louder and louder. I pulled myself up to the gurney and began loosening her restraints. Heather, we have to get out of here. She just screamed and yelled. Her eyes rolled back into her head as the pain of her withdrawal became overwhelming. Thud! 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 The things on the other side of the door started shaking the doorknob. I unbuckled the final strap on Heather's arms as I saw the back door begin opening. I rushed to the back of the cabin and slammed myself sideways into the door, shutting it. I looked down to see if there was a lock. There was not. The screaming outside continued. Thud! 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 Not knowing what I was going to see, I slowly bent sideways and looked through the window. Walking slowly towards us from Grizzly Lake, were hundreds of dark figures. They lethargically stepped from the banks of the water, in and out of moonlight, bellowing. Some were dressed in decorated military uniforms. Some held trophies close to their chest. Some hugged stuffed animals. It seemed as if their only mission was to join their leader at the door and add to the deafening noise. The sounds of pain... Terrified, I planted my feet in the dirt and used all my strength to pass against the door. Thud! 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 I bent sideways and looked through the window again. One of the inhabitants of Grizzly Lake pressed himself against it. Using both his hands, he started beating a football against the window until it broke. The ball shot in and out of the window, and one of his hands began carefully breaking apart the glass planted my feet, and pressed backward against the door. If I had anything to do with it, they would not get into the cabin. Unfortunately, the force of the Grizzly Lake Army became too powerful, and I fell forward. And then I saw Heather's bare feet walk past me. Not scared and not screaming any longer, she put her hand on the doorknob and began turning it. I got on my knees and began begging, don't go, Heather. Please don't go. I love you so much. You're not a burden. I don't mean to think that. 
I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be without you. I reached toward her. We can fix this. We can make you better, I promise. Please, Heather, don't go. She turned back and put the homecoming crown on her head. I love you too, little brother. You're the greatest thing that ever happened to me. She opened the door and a hand reached into the cabin to invite her out. She looked back one last time, blew me a kiss, and smiled for the first time since before my parents died. She accepted the hand from Grizzly Lake and walked into the darkness. The door closed behind her. The screaming stopped, and all of Heather's pain was sucked out of the cabin. I hope you enjoyed The Cabin by Grizzly Lake by author Drew Stepik, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that story, please check out more of the author's work on Amazon.com by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash drew. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash D-R-E-W. You'll find copies of his critically acclaimed novel, Knuckle Supper as well as its sequel, Knuckle Bald, in a variety of Stepik's other works. Or visit Drew's website, knucklesupper.com today for more information and to connect with him. Thanks for your support of the author and indie horror. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Don't forget, all of the tales featured in tonight's program were originally penned as part of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights planned trilogy of horror anthologies in homage to the iconic book series Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Though tonight's tales will no longer appear in that series, many new, longer-length tales will, and the books are being prepared as we speak. Stay tuned to Chilling Tales on Facebook, Twitter, and their YouTube channel for more updates as the books are finalized and for details on where you can pick up a copy of these fully illustrated collections once they're released. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive Dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, 
And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>